Well, you heard it on the ATN podcast. Let's see it here. The last seconds of the UMHB Harden-Simmons game. And UMHB is going to race the field goal unit out there. Oh. Nine seconds and counting, and they're going to have to hurry and line up. This is going to be a 42-yard attempt to win the game by Anthony Avila. And they just get it away. The kick is up. And good. Mary Hart Baylor wins it at the buzzer. A 42-yard field goal. And the crew has stopped. <laughs> Harden Simmons 15-14 is the final. Harden Simmons coaches storm the field, wanting a delay of game. And they're not going to get it. The officials have signaled good. UMHP right now a game-winning 42-yard field goal. Okay, so there's a lot to take apart in that, and we're going to spend our open doing it here. Uh, basically, first things first, uh, we're going to freeze frame. Now, the clock on the screen is not the official clock. Video cameras and the computers that sync up these clocks are not always in sync, and so we can't tell right. for sure if this thing is off at zero or before zero, but let's face it, JB, there are multiple people concentrating on the clock and the snap, and I'm pretty confident that one of them would have actually noticed if the ball didn't get up in time, including the center, who probably was watching the clock as much as anybody, make sure he had gotten the ball snapped back to the yeah. uh, holder, Luke Poorman, at that point in time. So there goes that philosophy, that theory. Uh, the other one is, oh, they didn't give him enough time to substitute. But as uh, was shown by some folks, here's the rule, or actually the interpretation uh, from the NCAA rulebook, which basically states almost the exact uh, circumstance. Late in the first half, in this case it was the second half, Team A is out of timeouts. A pass play on third down ends in bounds. The 25 short of the line of game with the clock showing 10 seconds. I think it was the 25 here, wasn't it, that they uh, had gotten to in the last uh, play? Facing fourth down and three, or whatever it is, Team A immediately hurries in a field goal team onto the field. And the ruling is... Team B should reasonably expect that a Team A will attempt a field goal in this situation and should have its field goal defense unit ready. The umpire will not stand over right. the ball despite them standing over it for seven seconds as there should be no issue of the defense being uncertain about the next play. In other words, of course it's going to be a field goal at that point. What do they think was going to happen? While well, everybody's changing in and out as they're going down the field and a seven seconds expire. Punt, drop, kick. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I, I really don't get what the... Harden-Simmons fans are trying to attach to. Look, Harden-Simmons, you did a great job in that game to make it a close yeah. game. You should have won it by all rights. I get it. But by all rights and by all reality, Mary Harden-Baylor won the football game 15-14. to 14. There is no do-over here. Great there kick. is no rule that was broken. The referees got away from the ball, which gave them the safe harbor of UMHB to snap the ball because there was no further substitution going on. Everything was fine. And Avila's kick, holy cow, that was a great booming kick by him. It would been good from 55, man. He really decked it. And uh, shout out to Luke Porman with the hold. That's, you know, it's a whole unit. This is from the snapper to the holder to the kicker. They executed. And as Coach Fred said in the um, postgame interview, it's something that they practice all the time. And every football team, I think, at every level practices all the time. So I'm I'm, no sure that he, I'm sure that he included at a baby uh, when he uh, said something <laughs> to that effect, because that is his uh, favorite quote. Uh, but okay, before we go uh, into our uh, you know real open, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, the opening credits, uh, tell me what you think about UMHB after this game now. 
Well, they, they certainly seem more vulnerable than they have in prior years. And I think that's probably why most uh, top 25 voters brought them back down to number two and Mount Union's your new number one. Um, but it's worked out pretty good for the crew when they've been number two in the past. They've won national championships in those years. So um, at the end of the day, uh, they're still undefeated. They're still going to be a top seed in the tournament, assuming that they can you know, get through the rest of their schedule unscathed. Uh, that Texas Lutheran game looks a little more interesting now, considering the fact that they beat um, Arden Simmons. So, yeah. It's a little more Yep. Yeah, one loss. for love syllogism. Yep, there it is. <laughs> Doesn't really work well in football, but we got a lot to talk about in this show. And so let's start week eight, my goodness, of In the Huddle. Okay, let's go back to the East region now after opening our show with the South region, effectively. But uh, a game that affects the East region because uh, Pool C bid uh, could have gone to Harden-Simmons uh, or to Mary Harden-Baylor, actually, if they had uh, lost the game, Mary Harden-Baylor, because uh, Harden-Simmons would have taken the lead in the ASC and Mary Harden-Baylor would have been a prime Pool C candidate. Now, it looks like only one team will come out of the ASC unless Texas Lutheran can do what Harden-Simmons could not. We'll see what happens down the line. We got a yep. lot of teams in the East, though, looking at possible Pool C and Pool A bids still. Nothing is for certain. Nobody has clinched, although we have teams ready or on the verge of doing it this coming Saturday. How we got there is first what we talk about here uh, in crunch time coming up in a moment. But, JB, we call it down here uh, Blowout City, uh, but not across the board. There were some good games, but no, boy, there are some scores that are just getting wider and wider as uh, the season chugs along. What are you thinking? Uh, well, I think you know we're uh, we're seeing the the true contenders start to present themselves, and um, there's some teams out there that might even be better than we realized. Uh, but um, like you said, no no bids have been clinched just yet, but we're starting to get a pretty good sense. Uh, there are going to be some great matchups in week nine that could potentially decide those conference races. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're in the final three weeks of the season here. It's, it's getting down to brass tacks. Before we run out cliches, let's go to crunch time for week eight of the 2019 season. And uh, this week in crunch time, we're going to start again with the uh, CCC back to New England here. And we're going to start with the game between uh, a very upstart Western New England team against Curry. But Curry in this game only uh, trailed by one point at halftime. It took a, a touchdown from Al Coleman to Adam Raza, a five-yarder here, as you're seeing, to make it 28-20. to And that started a streak of 28 straight points for Western New England. They won it 49-27 and had 559 total yards as Coleman passed for 384. Also in the CCC, we had Nichols 51, University of New England 48 in triple overtime. Touchdown from Josh Pierre Charles. So we finally get his name right. I wanna make sure we got that right here. 
and that touchdown made it 51-48 after University of New England had kicked a field goal in their half of triple overtime. So that was a walk-off by Nichols. Endicott, 41, Husson, 16, as Endicott scored 31 unanswered. You know, Endicott's been having to play from behind at certain points in games and responded, but we'll see how that uh, works as uh, the games mount up on their schedule. we got a big one coming up for them we'll talk about later. But, uh, you know, Endicott's offense with 54 plays in less than 21 minutes of possession time, that's an odd uh, situation because the defense had to force four interceptions in that game. And finally, Salve Regina, 45, Becker, zeros, Joey Moriello at 202 rushing yards and five touchdowns. That's a lot of touchdowns for a running back. Pick your favorites there. Well, I think the most interesting uh, score is probably uh, the Western New England Curry one because they, they struggled a little bit, but now we're starting to see some vintage Alec Coleman. Um, that matchup with Endicott is probably the de facto conference title game here. Shout out to Jory Moriello, though. He's the fifth-ranked rusher in Division Three right now. I know Salve's not having the best season, but this guy has been cranking out 200-yard rushing games, multiple touchdown games all season long. Um, so, you know, got to give him, got to give him some credit there. But yeah, right now it's all about Endicott and Western New England. In the ECFC, SUNY Maritime 13, Anna Maria 10 in overtime, and we had a Joseph Gagliardi 37-yard field goal to force overtime with 17 seconds left, and then he had another one in, uh, at uh, basically the end of the overtime session to win the game for SUNY Maritime from 29 yards out. Joseph Gagliardi with that 13-10 win, seven points of those uh, 13 were his responsibility for SUNY Maritime. Also, Castleton uh, could not hold on to a late lead. Alfred State wins at 21-15. You're seeing the touchdown with 5.09 left. The 32-yard uh, touchdown, Deshaun Wilson to Shirell Broadwater. And it is a 21-15 final after the two-point conversion made it so. And Dean 56, Gallaudet 35. This guarantees that the winner of the ECFC will have at least four losses this season in terms of the Pool A bid, at least, because Dean is ineligible. We've chronicled it here quite a bit. But Dean's offense outgained Gallaudet 485 to 235. 39-plus minutes of time possession for Dean. Tyrell Watts, 20 of 26, 249 passing yards in five touchdowns total in that game. Gallaudet uh, with a setback, but between Gallaudet, SUNY Maritime, and Alfred State, there's still a lot to be said in this conference. Yeah, and I guess even you know, technically Anne Maria, but also two and one, um, could try to you know play spoiler. But yeah, for some unknown reason, at the end of that um, overtime game, Frank, the 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 Amcats kept trying to throw the ball into the left corner of the end zone. They ran almost it looked like the same play four times, and, and they just weren't able to connect. So instead of just doing some short yardage, maybe runs, or just to try to kick a field goal themselves, um, they they tried to go for the the proverbial win and. Um, you know, all, all it took was another uh, Gallardi field goal to, to get the win for the privateers. So uh, certainly you know, up in the air with the ECFC as usual, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to see how it goes this weekend when I think uh, SUNY Maritime takes on Gallaudet. Let's move on to uh, the NASCAC and uh, Western Connecticut versus Framingham State. We kind of chronicled this game, the kind of weirdness of it because it felt like the Rams were the favorite going in despite having two losses uh, compared to no losses for Westcon. Well, Framingham State took an early lead in this game and then with Westcon trying to make a comeback, 
An 88-yard kickoff return by Devon Ford made it 32-14 to with 2.14 left in the third quarter. No looking back for Framingham State. At that point, they went at 39-14. Adam Wojcicki, 260 total yards, five touchdowns, including four in the air. The defense had six sacks in the game and three interceptions. An all-around great effort by Framingham State. Also, let's take a look at Plymouth State. The last play of the game. Uh, Matt Dizone, excuse me, Matt Dizone uh, was uh, covering here. Here's the call. Fourth and six, long, three-step drop, gonna look over the middle, scrambles to his right for the end zone, and incomplete, Montefiore's pushed out of bounds on the reception. Matt Dizone with some great coverage. Plymouth State holds on in a defensive struggle, seven to three, as all scoring occurred in the first half. It, we had Nick Lancia and David Hamilton rushing 40 times combined for 188 yards for Plymouth State. And, uh, you know, the, the rest is history in that game. Surprised at the low-scoring nature of that game to a certain degree, but Plymouth State comes away with it. Then it's Mass Dartmouth back on the winning track, 46-8, as the Corsairs outgained Worcester State 519-292. Gaychuk with 331 total yards and four total touchdowns for UMass Dartmouth and Westfield State beats Fitchburg State in a battle of winless. Now Westfield State, excuse me, a battle to get their first win, excuse me, Westfield State gets their first right. win as Fitchburg had one win already, 26-7. to uh, I think it's Lissandro Colon had 20 rushes for 132 yards and two touchdowns in that game. But let, I, I think we have to talk about the Framingham State performance. It was impressive. Yeah, uh, it definitely was. The defense uh, showed up and really you know, shut down the, uh, the David James colonial uh, aerial attack. And, you know, Wojcicki uh, put up kind of the usual numbers that you'd expect from him, but it was really the defense that sort of set the tone in that one. And then the special teams touchdown was kind of the backbreaker. Um, and uh, now the Rams are in the driver's seat. And the one team that's not up on the scoreboard is Bridgewater State, who uh, with only one loss could play uh, spoiler uh, coming up in a couple weeks. Um, the Bears are resurgent and um, you know, big rivals of Framingham. So uh, certainly keep an eye on them. Let's go to the new Mac next and uh, more video, of course, because that's what we do here on In the Huddle. Uh, it's MIT 22 Coast Guard 16. This is an unfortunate turn of events for Coast Guard as MIT was forced to punt late in the game. And here's what happened. High end over end kick. Little confusion back there. That ball's out. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. I think MIT's got it. MIT's got it. And then a little bit later, Ashton Robinson, as you'll see here, with the 11-yard touchdown run, you could tell that Coast Guard, Coast Guard was just brokenhearted, and it was an easy 11-yard touchdown there, 22-16 to in favor of MIT. And, you know, what more can you say? But Coast Guard's had one of those seasons where things just haven't always gelled at the very end of the games, unfortunately, for them. Then let's take a look here at Julian Nyland going to Clark Ewan for a 59-yard touchdown. and made it 21-0 very early on the way to a very surprising 66-13 win over Merchant Marine. This is WPI's best start in their history at 7-0, 645 total yards, three, make that four touchdowns for Nyland, 
And uh, let's talk about, you know, Connor Field, I think, had three touchdowns along with, uh, I think, Sean mm-hmm. McGallan having one as well from 80 yards out. So the, all around on the offense, great effort there. Uh, let's go to Springfield 49, Catholic 21, with 470 rushing yards from Springfield. Chad Shade had 168 total yards and two touchdowns in that game. And Norwich 51, May Maritime 10. Norwich led 44-3 at the half. Matt Dunn, 376 yards, four touchdowns passing. But look, right now, you can see it with the uh, zero and one, one loss scenarios. This conference is going to be a fight between WPI, MIT, and Springfield. Yeah, definitely. And that uh, WPI-MIT game is coming up this weekend. So uh, a big uh, big conference matchup at stake. I mean, MIT is still the defending champions, and they're trying to you know keep that uh, you know, trophy on the mantle, so to speak. But WPI, man, wow, 66 points. I think that was a, a program high for them as well. The 645 total yards against uh, Merchant Marine. Didn't see that one coming, Frank. <laughs> Nobody did, honestly. I, I, that was impressive and unbelievable at the same time. Let's go yeah. to the Empire 8. Cortland, boy, I, this touchdown you're about to see. Ricky Chenard keeping his head in it and his hands around it. It's an amazing play. Also, we're going to see when we do a head-on view of this uh, play how Sagala basically is behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, remember, you you don't need to be fully behind it. You need at least just a part of your body behind the line of scrimmage to not be uh, illegally forward passing in college football. And uh, Vosberg didn't agree necessarily. But again, as we slow down, you'll see the ball is secure in bounds. Great job there. And then let's look at the final play of this game. Ready to go. He throws toward Blake at the pylon, and it's incomplete. There is a flag on the field, however. Holding on the Cardinals. The touchdown wouldn't have counted anyway had Blake caught it. The game has come to an end. Cortland just barely hangs on to hold off Fisher. So all told, with between that touchdown and the great final defensive play as uh, St. John Fisher was down nine late and almost rallied to win it, it's 42-37 Cortland. Cortland trailed four times in the game uh, by as much as those nine points. Uh, Fred Segala, 18 for 32, 409, four touchdowns, and a pump block uh, for touchdown again by Cortland's special teams helps with the win. Brockport 41, Utica 14 as Kenny Hernandez had a 42-yard interception return for a touchdown with about 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. That kind of turned back an attempt by Utica to come back in the game. Final score 41-14 and Alfred 34, Hartwick 7, Aaron Griffin with 18 rushes, 118 yards, two touchdowns. And the Alfred defense held Hartwick to 79 rushing yards, a sack of two INTs. Back to Brockport for a second, though. Minus two rushing yards once again. How how in the world is it that this team started out so slow, but is back to last year's form, at least on rush defense? Yeah, it just was one of those games where everything just went awry, and uh, they just got in the hole and never really got out of it. So uh, Brockport is, you, know, you got to give that coaching staff a lot of credit. They have righted the ship. Um, they found some, some new players to, to contribute. And so, yeah, I mean, right now, Brockport, Cortland uh, on a collision course for the Empire 8 championship uh, this weekend, it looks like. No video in the Liberty League, but we'll talk about the game still. Ithaca 59, Rochester 0 as Ithaca outgained Rochester 557 to 207. Joe Germanario 
goes 22 for 27, five touchdowns, 332 yards, only one interception in the game. Number 25, Union, at the collision course with Ithaca, wins against Buffalo State 28-14. A little bit of a pedestrian performance by Union in that game, though. Will Bellamy did have 264 yards and four touchdowns in the game. And uh, you're giving a little bit of a uh, shout-out in your uh, stat lines here to offensive lineman Kyle Schrader, who recovered the fumble for Buffalo State, scored a touchdown. It's a a Peisman Trophy uh, candidate, I'm sure, right there. Five sacks for Union defense. St. Lawrence had a hold on as RPI tried to surge back after going down pretty big early. St. Lawrence becoming a yeah. first, ha- first half team of sorts as well with that passing game. They led 28 to 0 at the half. They held down for a 35 21 win. Tyler Gross shots 30 for 47 performance, 357 to 5 touchdowns. A big deal in that situation. So that is the Liberty League, but again, it is. The championship game stated incorrectly on Twitter this week, deleted the tweet because it actually is, in fact, the championship game coming up between Ithaca Union. We'll talk more about that later, but what did you think of the action? You know, I think I, um, I was most impressed by the fact that, you know, St. Lawrence just came out and took it to RPI so strongly. I mean, the Saints have been a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde team this season, but if you look on the stat lines, uh, Groshot's numbers are very close, if not almost identical, to Joe Germanario's in every area except for maybe um, interceptions. Joe has, Joe has only thrown three, whereas uh, Tyler's thrown nine. But otherwise, their yardage, the completion percentage, touchdowns, and all that is pretty much the same. So um, Hobart, who's going to be hosting the Saints this weekend, is uh, they're in for a fight. Well, let's uh, go to the MAC, where it was the home of the starting kickoff return for touchdown, basically, today. First, Delaware Valley. Here's uh, Jameer Prevard's 98-yard kickoff return, and he goes to the house with it to start the game. Delaware never looked back, 51-3 over Lebanon Valley. That breaks the consecutive winning streak in MAC games by uh, Delaware Valley. Uh, it's 26 straight now for them, and they outgained Lebanon Valley 452-100. to now we got a few clips here from the Wilkes Misericordia overtime game. First, here's another kickoff return. It is this time Nate Whitaker, and he goes to the house. But look, we had to go overtime, and Misericordia scores first, gets a touchdown. Look what happens: missed extra point, key game or key play in the game. As on the Wilkes side of overtime, here's a 16-yard touchdown from. Oh, who is that? Nate Whitaker, the same kickoff return touchdown guy from earlier, and he got that from Doug Weist, who was in for Jose Tabor, who was ejected from this game for two personal fouls earlier in the game. We'll talk more about that later, but it is 36-35 Wilkes in overtime, staying alive in a very, very small chance for a pool C bid. And Lycoming, 42, FDU Florham, 21. Elijah Shemery with 417 total yards, four passing and two rushing touchdowns, six touchdowns for him. Widener 59, Albright 34, as their offense had 619 total yards. And Sean McGahee with 453 passing yards and seven passing touchdowns for Widener. Stevenson 39, Kings 15. Stevenson had 17 unanswered in the third quarter and a about 270 yard uh, advantage on offense. Three touchdowns for Ryan Sedgwick, the Stevenson quarterback. But boy, the highs and lows of that Wilkes-Misericordia game. It seems like every Misericordia game has these highs and lows. 
Well, Frank, I got a special message from you from Coach Drock. He, uh, he, he wrote me on Saturday at around 7.45. Tell Frank, thanks for the bulletin board material, LOL. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah I, I, I believe you. And uh, Coach Isernia has uh, practiced that one on me over the last two years. So no problem, Coach. Love you, Drock. Yeah, you got to give him credit, though. I mean, they, the Wilkes was down their number one wide receiver, their starting left tackle, both their, their number one and number two quarterbacks after um, Tabora got ejected for a little uh, huffing and puffing, apparently, um, you know, second personal, not exactly the ideal situation we want to see, but third, you know, third string quarterback leads the team to a win in, in overtime. That's uh, talk about the next man up. And that's a pretty impressive job by the, by the, by the Colonels there. We say blowout city, but not across the board. Another overtime game we'll lead with here in the then Jack coming up. That is Wesley, 20, uh, Montclair State, 17. And you're going to see uh, the touchdown from uh, Ruhan Peel. Uh, it's a one-yard run, but let's recognize he's a wide receiver, and they basically blocked for him to, with his speed, you know, just blast through the hole with the speed, and it worked. 20-17, to 17. more from him later after we talk about Wesley overcoming three interceptions, including a pick six. They scored with 38 seconds remaining, had a huge fourth, and I think it was 17 they had to convert on that drive. They were yeah. two for two on fourth down conversions on the final drive to tie it, and then you saw the win right there after Montclair State had a field goal in their end of overtime. Then, let's take a look at the back-to-back -back chicanery in the Rowan-William uh, Patterson game. It was seven to nothing, uh, to, you know, at halftime, William Patterson, Rowan scores, and here's uh, Elijah Rem with the 30-yard touchdown run, a great fake, and he gets it to the house for a 14-7 uh, lead. Then Gerard Hayes, very wide awake in the backfield, well, the backfield, or we call it the uh, receiving zone of the kickoff, the ensuing kickoff, a six-yard scoop and score off that kickoff for a 21-7 lead. So in a matter of seconds, it went from 7-7, 21-7 in favor of Rowan, Final score, 21-14 Rowan. They scored 21 unanswered in that third quarter, including the two you saw right there. Mike uh, Mascioli with 14 tackles in the game. Also Salisbury, 65, Kane, 16. The number 10 team in the nation outgained Kane 409-254, yet they won by 49 points. Go figure that one out. And Christopher Newport, 17, TCNJ, 6. TCNJ's offense has got to show up here because your defense is doing a reasonably good job across the board, but they're not putting up the points. As Jack Anderson for CNU went 20 for 21, 186 yards, one touchdown. That's an efficient day if I've ever heard of one. Yeah, and apparently he's uh, he must be healthy because we we had seen in prior weeks that the, they had a different quarterback plan. So uh, maybe that's been part of the the um, captain struggles this season is is trying to keep their team healthy, but. Good win against a tough uh, against a tough Lions team. Now Christopher Newport, two and two in the NJAC. I mean, they're, they're they're fighting to get back to 500 before the season's over. Let's end in the NESCAC, and here is the field goal that won the game in double overtime as both kickers missed kicks in the first overtime. That is Mason Von Ness. Love the name. 20-yard game-winning field goal for uh, Wesleyan. It's 31-28 over Amherst in that game. They moved to 6-1, and one, but again, they're really not looking good in the chances for the win of the conference because Middlebury continues to win. They won 47-29. That's the 100th win for Coach Ritter. And Will Jernigan with 203 total yards and four touchdowns he accounted for. 
Williams 29, Trinity 15. There's significance to this game beyond the fact Williams moving to 6-1, and one, and that is that there is a 20-home game winning streak broken for Trinity in this game. So this season has really come crashing apart for Trinity, moving to 4-3 and three in the season, six sacks for the defense of Williams. Colby gets their first win of the uh, season in the CBB game one as it's 23-20 Colby. They led 23-6 at the half but had to hold off Bates who couldn't make it on a fourth down play from the 38. And Hamilton, 36 Tufts, 21. It is Hamilton's fourth win of the season. They're, they're really having a great season. We talked about last week. And their defense had three interceptions, three sacks, and one fumble recovery. But it's Middlebury's conference right now. Yep, really is. And congrats to Coach Ritter on the 100th win. Um, all you need, I think, at this point, Frank, is probably uh, one more to, to, to officially wrap it up. So uh, great season for the Panthers. Williams, you got to give them credit for playing spoiler to the Trinity uh, homecoming crowd and uh, Wesleyan for, for gutting out. And it's not too often you see Amherst with three losses either. So both them and Trinity uh, having tough seasons. And hey, guess what, JB? That's crunch time for week eight. And after crunch time, of course, we have our new exciting segment, JB Stat Chat. All right, here we go. Notable offensive days. We had, as we saw, WPI setting a uh, scoring record with 66 points. Salisbury with one, one point less than that with a 65 against Kane. Uh, Widener goes uh, 59 points. And uh, happy 21st uh, birthday to uh, Widener quarterback Sean McGahey. Seven touchdowns. He's the number one rated uh, passing, well, at least the, the has the most passing yards in Division Three right now. So a double whammy for him. Um, setting single game records for his school. And as I mentioned before, uh, Joey, Joey Morello with another 200 yard, uh, five touchdown game. Dean quarterback Terrell Watts um, getting the job done with five touchdowns. Uh, like Homing set a record. And I don't know if it was, if it was this one, Frank, but you know, there, there might've been a change to the box score with some of the yardage amounts, but still over 600 total yards for the Warriors. And um, you know, lots of quarterbacks having big days in the in the Liberty League. Uh, we talked about Matt Dunn with his uh, almost 400 yards passing, four touchdowns. Um, Shemery from Lycoming over 400 yards passing, I believe, six touchdowns there. So yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's been it was a lot of offense. That's why we were saying you know kind of blowout city. Although there were a couple of close games, um, that that was a big reason for it. On the defensive okay, side of the ball, hold, 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 hold on, hold hold on, JB. I think you need to take a drink because that was a lot of offensive performances you had to just go through right there. I'll take your defensive ones to give you a second to breathe here. I'm a good guy like that. Uh, Ithaca, the second consecutive shutout. Framingham State had those six sacks and 10 tackles for loss. Uh, Wilkes had six sacks, 13 tackles for loss total. That's incredible. One interception. Gallaudet's Mason Gooch had 15 tackles, a sack, and two for uh, loss as well, and a forced fumble. That's a lot of stat line. St. Lawrence and RPI combined for 10 sacks and 17 tackles for loss. So combined effort there despite a 35-21 score in that game. So uh, the, the Ds were tenacious, but a lot more Os than Ds when you look at the you know combined yep. look of these uh, things. But then you go back to the special teamers. I, I, have you recovered? Can you do this? Can you, can you give us all these special teamers? Yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot of special teamers uh, this weekend, Frank. So let's see if we can rattle them off quickly. So 
Jameer Prevard from Del Val, 98 kickoff return for a touchdown. You had uh, Wilkes wide receiver Nate Whitaker, as you mentioned, in, in crunch time with a 93-yard kickoff return for a touchdown to open the game. They needed that touchdown to win it uh, in, in the end because they only won by one point in overtime. Um, Nick D. Cariano from Endicott still booting 40-plus um, yard field goals. He was also 5-for-5 five five on PATs. Had a 62.1-yard average on his kickoffs. I mean, can someone call the NFL and tell them to take a look at this kid? Because, boy, uh, it's impressive stats there. Uh, Joseph Gagliardi from um, SUNY Maritime, we mentioned game-winning field goal for them to keep them in the ECFC hunt. And then once again – Not not, not just the game-winner there, but also the one that tied it before OT as well. So he was two for two late. He stayed twice for for the privateers. And then once again, this is like the third or fourth week in a row, Frank, that Cortland has scored – some kind of special teams touchdown. We talked about it with Brett Sagala in our uh, in our player interview from last week, and it's really true. I mean, this special teams unit is is helping Cortland win games and keeping them unbeaten. They're now up to 18th in the country. So yeah, Dylan Dubuque returned, um, you know, blocked uh, blocked the punt. It was returned uh, by Mark uh, Dalsey for the touchdown. It was a key point in the game too, Frank, because. Um, Cortland was down by nine points. This punt blocking touchdown all of a sudden just put him behind two, really had a huge momentum swing and, and helped the Dragons prevail in that one. Um, Framingham State's Devon Ford, 88-yard kickoff return. And then, yeah, MIT's Jake Benoit um, with that, uh, I guess, uh, force, you know, f- uh, f- uh, fumble on the punt return. Because at, at that point, it looked like you know, MIT's day was done because uh, all the, uh, that uh, – uh, Ryan Murphy and company had to do was, or sorry, Ryan Jones had to do was uh, just kneel down and, and 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 to get the win. But they force they force a turnover, and MIT is still alive in the new MAC title race. So I, I we had to go back and make a correction here. I'm just noticing as we we're uh, talking about something that it looks like, according to their box score, that that. Nichols University of New England game did go to four overtimes, uh, not three overtimes, actually. And so, uh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, there, there's only one way to confirm this. Uh, go to the actual sites, official sites uh, information here and see how many overtimes were there. Four overtimes, JB. So, actually, I, I take it back, guys, and uh, we'll make sure the notes re- uh, reflect this. But uh, you guys did match uh, the Nichols with the win in it. Uh, the current... 2019 record for Division Three games. The 30s region game to go to a quadruple overtime session is wow. Nichols uh, versus University of New England. So sorry about that, uh, University of New England. Uh, th- thanks for your good video, by the way. Uh, they they have quality video for a new program, but Nichols yeah. got that win. Uh, let's go back also for a second, Wesley and their win. Uh, you know that was a, a heck of a comeback. I, it looked like Montclair State had them that would have actually met my upset call for the week. It did not quite uh, materialize. But let's talk here. Ruan Peel, he had both that big fourth down conversion we were talking about and the game-winning touchdown from one yard out. He talked with Sean Green from WDEL after the game. With Ruan Peel after a crazy overtime victory for Wesley, take me through that last play. Um, coach called to play. Uh, we, uh, we, said, we said a few things to each other. We knew the game was on the line. I liked the play call we all did. I felt like we was going to get in there. Now uh, the O-line dominated, did their job, and uh, I squeezed through there and got in there and celebrate with my teammates. The fourth and 15 play, the timeout is called. You guys had plenty of time to think about it. 
you know, when you're coming back to that football and you're right down at the first down mark, did you know you had that first down? I believe I have that when I caught it. I felt like I was at the yard line that I needed to be. He pushed me forward, so I thought they was going to give us a forward progress, and they did, and I'm happy it turned out to be our way and we got that call. How tough was this for this Wesley offense against a really good Montclair State defense? Montclair was very physical. I believe the most physical team we played this year. But I also feel like it was more mistakes on our end than their part. Um, I had a lot of drops personally. Um, we had a few overthrown, th overthrown balls. And uh, we just wasn't executing it. You know, it's hard to win that way. And uh, we stuck together and we fought. And we executed when we needed to and came out with the victory. What did this offense learn about itself on that last drive of regulation? Uh, we learned that if we stick together, keep our heads on, keep that brotherhood, get tight, and act like we're a family and give it all on the line, that we could come up, we could compete with anybody, and if the game's on the line, we can win together if we stick together. It's now two overtime victories and the kick at the end of Endicott and a one-point game against Rowan. These were games you guys were losing last year. What's the difference between this squad and the squad from last year? Uh, honestly, I think we are bought into more of what the coaches are saying, um, and I also think the team bonding is closer. I think guys are, you know, more passionate and locked in about things. And uh, I just think it's the, throughout the week we're focused on being one to know. We're looking at the big picture, and uh, we know games like this where we're going to overtime and winning by field goals. It just makes us stronger for deep, deep playoffs, late football games, and uh, it's going to help us win. On that last play of regulation, how long did that ball feel like it was floating to Ricky Hess from your angle? Oh man, I was right by him, and I'm <laughs> like, oh man. And I see him hit a burst of energy, and he got it and got in there. I was so happy. You know, um, I had a bad game, I felt like, but I feel like uh, that's what your brothers and teammates are for, to pick you up when you're down and, you know, just execute when we need to execute. Thanks to Sean from WDEL, our good friend there, and uh, Jason Bowen, always a great friend of ours as well. He works with on uh, the broadcasts. But uh, Sean, with that uh, in interview, that uh, he posted to Twitter and uh, great helps. And uh, I, I wish I'd gone down there for that game. It just, it was impossible uh, time-wise, but I, I was considering it. I had a circle in my calendar for a while. Then I realized it's at Wesley and it would have been tough to go to versus if it was at Montclair State. Either way, great game, watched a lot of it. And uh, then the video crapped out on the whole thing. And so we had to go to the audio for a little bit. Sean, you sounded good right. on uh, the audio. You, uh, granted, your audio on video, but when I only had to rely on your voice, you did a great job. So, okay, JB, let's talk about the conference races at this point. Who can win it outright next week? Who can't? But first. Well, funny. We have, we have a question from the warden of the NJAC, uh, Wolverines fandom, one of, our, uh, one of our big fans out there. We appreciate um, you know, them following the show. And he asked, well, playoffs are on the horizon. Conferences are just about set, and the at-large bids are in contention. How's everything shaping up in your purview? Any locks, surprises, long shots? Seems kind of appropriate a question. Hey, hey, there you go. Uh, well, put Rossi in his quarterback, yeah, and you're fine, basically. Exactly. So, okay, uh, what, was the, yeah, what was the ultimate uh, question one more time for me? The ultimate question was kind of with the playoffs on the horizon, uh, conferences are, are just about set, at-large bids are in contention. How's everything shaping up in your purview? Any locks, surprises, or long shots that we see kind of on the immediate horizon? Why don't we go through uh, the standings and we'll basically point it out. How's that sound? At least uh, from the East region's point of view. I, I think it's the way to handle it. So let's look yep. at the locks or the big games coming up this week and what's squaring away itself. Endicott, Western New England. Hey, they play this week. 6-1, 6-1, 4 4-0, 4-0 uh, in the conference. But, you know, the weirdness of it all is that Nichols is still technically a voice in this situation because they face Endicott. So, mm -hmm. in some ways, if 
yeah, let's let's follow the logic together here. If Western New England beats Endicott in this game, then Western New England would have to win one out of two of their remaining games to win the conference. Whereas yep. if Endicott wins the game, then if Nichols remains uh, with one loss to the end of the season, that Nichols game could decide it ultimately, or we could have a three-way tiebreaker scenario as well. So there is an interesting scenario brewing here because Nichols has not lost two games. That University of New England quadruple overtime win is important because it does not give us clarity in this conference based on this game alone. So that's something to look at as things develop. Is this a Pool C conference? No, it is not a Pool C conference, I don't believe. Western New England would have to climb probably over two teams to get there. The East will not get three Pool C bids, in my estimation. Uh, they'll be lucky to get two. They could, but the likelihood is one currently uh, Pool yeah. C bid. We'll see what happens if uh, a couple of things shake out. So there's the CCC. Anything you want to point out? Nope. I think, uh, I think you covered it. Okay. Well, now the ECFC. Uh, I, will say, I will go out on a major limb here on the ECFC to say this is indeed not a Pool C bid conference. I, I just, I, I know it hurts me to say this, but sure about that, Frank? Really? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take that leap here and say that right. Isuna Maritime, Gallaudet, while they're both one loss teams, uh, we have three weeks or uh, yeah, three weeks left in the season, but only really two weeks of conference games left. This is the oddity yep. in their schedule because the only game on November 16th is Suny Maritime playing Mount St. Joseph, which is a non-conference game. So, this coming week, Gallaudet, SUNY Maritime, as you pointed out earlier. Dean, Alfred State is important because Alfred State still poses a minor threat in this situation as they still face SUNY Maritime. So SUNY Maritime wins and Alfred State wins on Saturday. Then, really, things get a little interesting in that SUNY Maritime-Alfred State game on the 9th at Alfred State. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in this conference still. What could go really wrong is if all hell breaks loose somehow. Anna Maria has a voice in this thing still because I believe they play Gallaudet uh, in the final week of the season, uh, November 9th, final uh, week of conference play of the season for them. So technically they are still in, as you said, for a pool A bid. Dean, though, right now, if they win uh, this week, would be in a virtual lock position for the conference title, whatever that means. Uh, there, there's that figure. There we go. Conference title. Uh, but not to pull a bit. And we've kind of chronicled that whole situation. We're not going to bore you with it. So there's a lot to go here to talk in the ECFC. How about the MASCAC? Uh, are we a pool C bid conference here? No. Um, no situations where, you know, well, look, West kind of they went out. We would be nine and one, but would not win the conference title. Framingham State wins out as well. So, yeah, okay. There, there's a possibility for a one-loss team not to win the conference, which is one of the major qualifiers for Pool C. But Western Connecticut doesn't have the resume to qualify, is what most people would say to you. Well, Greg uh, Thomas Wally Wabash, as we call him, uh, would confirm that I believe as much as anybody. So you have Framingham State at five and two, Western Connecticut six and one, but the conference records are five and zero for Framingham State and Western Connecticut four and one. You pointed out Bridgewater State earlier, 
And Bridgewater State has a game coming up against Framingham State in Week 10 that could yep. be essentially whether or not we square away the conference title on November 9th, Week 10. So that's one to keep your eye on. First, though, this weekend, uh, you know, Plymouth State, Bridgewater State is actually a big game. Framingham State, Mass Maritime at Mass Maritime. You know what? Mass Maritime, despite a recent slip-up, is still a team that's trying to prove themselves here. And their win-loss record at 5-2, and 3-2 two, and two in the conference, shows that they're a better team than we've expected. So, you know what? Framingham State can't look past them. No. I've I, I left you speechless. It's amazing sometimes. Amazing. <laughs> so then let's go to the new Mac. WPI at 7-0. and oh. Now, WPI dropped the game. I believe they have to still play Springfield. Uh, they have played Springfield already, correct? So it's uh, okay. MIT. Springfield's remaining schedule is Maine Maritime and MIT. Uh, WPI has to play MIT as well. So MIT has some control here over their destiny. In fact, mm -hmm. they do control their own destiny. Does MIT at four and two, three and one? They play WPI in Springfield. If MIT were to win out, or if WPI were to win out, they control their own destiny to win the conference. Springfield needs help. They need MIT to beat WPI and then some other things to go haywire pretty much uh, in the situations. But MIT has already beaten Springfield and WPI has beaten, or actually, no, wait a minute though. No, uh, MIT plays uh, Springfield, excuse me. So take that back, only partially. Yeah. MIT Springfield could be an important game in week 11. But right. the conference could be solved as early as November 9th, depending on some things shaking out, if WPI basically can be perfect to that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, and what I'm starting to hear a common theme across the board here, Franco, especially with these New England conferences, is that even though there are bigger matchups in Week 9, the conference title still won't be decided until Week 10 or 11 because of certain other teams hanging around on the periphery. So... Maybe Week 10 is turning out to be more of a championship Saturday than I realize, um, just based on the fact that we won't really have any resolution uh, this weekend. We might you know, see teams that are putting themselves in position to clinch um, this, this Saturday, but actually, just given the way things have shaken out with this sort of topsy-turvy season, uh, it's really going to come down to Weeks 10 and 11, just like every other year. Well, here's a conference that could be solved after this weekend, though, and that is the Empire 8. If Cortland beats Brockport, then Cortland wins the conference because they've beaten both Brockport and Alfred at that point. So Cortland wins. They will be the playoff uh, headed team for the conference. And that would also mean that most likely Brockport and Alfred are not going to be Pool C eligible teams with two losses. Uh, they, they, there are too many good one-loss teams in the country that are going to be looking for Pool C bids. So yep. if Cortland wins, give Cortland the bid. If Brockport wins, then Pool C becomes a distinct possibility for Cortland if they can win out after right. that loss. A 9-1 yeah. Cortland team looking for a ticket from Pool C would be a very strong contender for Pool C. Yeah, especially if they're able to topple a, a potentially, you know, 9-0 uh, top 10 ranked Ithaca team, although Union's going to have a lot to say on whether or not that comes to pass, so we'll see. 
Well, let's look at the other uh, games real quick. Utica at Alfred and Morrisville State at Hartwick earlier in the day. Brockport at Cortland, 2 p.m. If you think I should go to that game, folks, you should be voting for it in the last hours of our poll. We have over 350, maybe even uh, close to 400 votes. Earlier, it was close to 400. It was like 379, like an hour ago. And this is on Tuesday afternoon, so Lord only knows where it is right now. But our most successful poll ever, and I guess the schools are really behind this, although the state schools were getting walloped as of the recording of this uh, episode here. It was like 75-25 Union Ithaca winning that uh, versus – yeah, so there you go. Um, Let's go to the Liberty League since we kind of just uh, began that discussion a little bit. And here's the conference championship game. If Union wins, they win it. If Ithaca wins, they win it. As there are no one-loss teams remaining below them, and both teams have one non-conference game to go, Union will play Utica in Week 10, and Ithaca will play Cortland in Week 11. So this will decide it. Week 9 will decide the Liberty League. Don't remember that happening too often, to be honest with you. It's 4-0 versus 4-0, 7-0 versus 7-0 in Ithaca. I'm probably going to be heading heading out to that game and uh, broadcasting from there a little bit uh, with you uh, on this uh, Saturday in some way, shape, or form or another. What are you thinking? Give us an early analysis of this one. I think it's going to come down to whether or not IK Airborne can rush for over 100 yards. If if Union can balance the passing attack with the with a strong rushing game that keeps Joe Germanario on the sidelines, then the Dutchmen have a chance to pull off the upset. And the other part of this is Pool C. If Ithaca loses this game and remains nine and one for the same reason you brought up about Cortland, a yeah. an Ithaca team that essentially is 9-1 with a win versus Cortland, ultimately, would be a very strong Pool C candidate. Union, on the other hand, has a a schedule issue right now. Their strength of schedule is not going to get high enough to really merit them much. They're going to need some teams to start appearing in the regional, regional rankings so they have regionally ranked opponents that they've beaten, like Hobart, to justify because when you're the teams that you played are Anna Maria and Westfield State in Utica, that's a problem right now. Utica coming up in week 10. Springfield, though, still possibly could be a ranked team, and that could actually help Union ultimately. So, yep, Ithaca is the more likely of the two to be a pool C eligible team, but Union would not be fully out of it if they were the team that needed the pool C bid ultimately. The undercard for the Liberty League, uh, briefly, St. Lawrence at Hobart and Buffalo State at RPI. That St. Lawrence-Hobart game is important for Union especially, I would say. But Ithaca too, they have both beaten uh, Hobart this season. And so if Hobart appears as a regionally ranked team with their two losses, then it is possible that it buoys Union or Ithaca, whoever loses this game, for Pool C purposes. So keep your eye on that score at noon on uh, Saturday. Okay, we've covered New York. Let's go to the uh, MAC at this point. Yeah, that's uh, six of the nine conferences. And Del Val at 6-0, but we have three teams sitting at 4-1 waiting and hoping for Del Val to slip. And Del Val's next game is against Alvernia. I'm doubting that they're going to slip in that game. The possibilities for a slip, though, by Del Val. They don't play in week 10, would have to be in week 11. 
against Widener. And if they were to lose against Widener, we'd have to look at the different tiebreak scenarios and whatnot. Let's see. Technically, I guess the question is, has DelVal played Wilkes and Stevenson, or can Misericordia even do anything with them because of... uh, DelVal beat Wilkes two weeks ago, and now, you know, Wilkes took care of Misericordia. Um, so, you know, they had, the Cougars have a loss now. So I, 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 the only situation I could see playing out, Frank, that would stop DelVal is but somehow they lost to Widener in week 11. I, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say, based on what we know about the tiebreaker scenarios here, uh, let's see, Wilkes, Stevenson, and uh, they won't play Misericordia. I will go out on the limb here and suggest to you that if Delaware Valley beats Alvernia, they've won the MAC. Yeah. Because I can't see a tiebreaker that Misericordia would beat them in. No, not with with identical uh, conference records. And the overall record would would tip the scales to DelVal. But yeah, Widener would have to be involved in the tiebreaker to yeah. uh, make DelVal uh, have a problem. Widener's 3-3 three and three right now. So yeah. uh, there, I don't think that Week 11 game will count in that respect. So the question becomes, is there any Pool C eligible team? Wilkes would be the only one there. If Wilkes goes 9-1, and one, it's a very, very slim chance that they could be in okay. some position for it. I, 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 how slim, folks? Look, is Wilkes better than an Ithaca team or a Cortland team at 9-1 or a Union team at 9-1 on paper? Probably not. Definitely not better than the Wesley team at 9-1 when it comes down to it. So, Or at 8-1 when you throw out the Franklin Pierce game. So, Wilkes, you've got a chance. Don't go to Vegas on it, please. It's the, I, I guess you don't even have to go to Vegas anymore because uh, all states allow betting now. But don't bet either. That, that's uh, Please don't bet. But you get my point. My guess is Wilkes ends up hosting a, a, a Max CCC bowl game, but we'll a Max CC game, you mean? Yeah. yeah, you added too many C's. C- <laughs> yeah. yeah, Centennial Conference. Although there are two seasons, yeah, you went CCC. They, yeah, unfortunately, here on Wheel of Fortune, we've been uh, looking for too much money. Um, and Jack <laughs> Salisbury Wesley. Okay, Salisbury basically has three games left. They win two of them, they win. Or if Wesley drops one, I I think they win as well. Uh, But let's just look at it this way. They could clinch on week 10, most likely, Salisbury. Uh, That would be against TCNJ. Here's something I wanted to kind of run by you, Frank. I I went, this this is scary because I actually was going back through some old, old data information. And so it's right now in the, in the top, um, in the top five, we basically have all teams that are either in the West or the, or the North and South regions, basically everywhere except for the East. Right. So what I'm having are flashbacks to uh, 2012 when the two top rated teams in the East region were a um, eight and one Wesley, and the one loss that Wesley had that season, I think, was to an FCS school. So basically, a undefeated Wesley team who was ranked as high as sixth, and you had a ten and zero Hobart team which was ranked as high as seventh. And the way the brackets broke down um, that particular year was that you had out in the sort of the west side of things, um, you had Oshkosh and Linfield, uh, where Linfield was in the top, was like number three or something like that. 
in the sort of in the, the other side of that bracket, you had uh, the Tommies um, as the number one and Hobart as the number two. The other side, you had Wesley paired with UMHB, and you had Mount the 9 0 Widener team on the other side of that bracket. So I could see, and I know we've talked about East Region pods, but it feels like this year we're looking at a situation. Let's say if Ithaca runs the table um, and they end up as high as, let's say, six or five. Um, and then Salisbury is sitting there at nine and zero with a with a team uh, with a win over a WIAC uh, team. They'll have some pretty good strength of schedule because of the NJAC. This is a situation playing out to me that feels an awful like an awful lot like this 2012 bracket. But who knows? So you're saying there probably wouldn't be an East centric bracket that they would just slide the uh, East pods around to different sectors. Yes, exactly. It feels like what would happen is, is that they would take an upstate New York uh, high-ranked champion like an Ithaca person, or maybe let's say if Cortland runs a table and they move, they'll move them to the north. They'll have Mount Union paired up in a situation with maybe a Del Val, um, you know, maybe with some Centennial teams mixed in there because Muhlenberg is right on the, you know, in the cups for the top five, top six. I just feel the way things are shaking out to me, Frank, and when I look at the top 25 poll, I just don't see, I mean, Maybe if Ithaca runs the table, they can they can get that potential one seed that we've talked about in the prior show. But it feels a lot more like 2012 to me, based on how things. You know, the Johnnies are, have been playing strong. Whitewater's right up there. Uh, just feels like it's going to be a northwest sort of centered top four. That's, Wait, that's I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'm going to debate back with you for a second here. If, if you look at the totality of where we are uh, in the regions of the north, south, and east, especially for a second. You've got Salisbury, probably a 9-0 team when it gets down to what you're saying. Possibly mm-hmm. Cortland Arithica as a 10-0 team, or perhaps Union. You could have Union and one of uh, Union and Cortland would be the possible uh, twosome there. Uh, Delaware Valley uh, is got the loss, so we can't look at the, uh, the MAC at that point. Uh, but Muhlenberg is possibly a 10-0 team waiting to happen. Mary Harden-Baylor, mm-hmm. if they can get through Texas Lutheran, looks like a 10-0 team waiting to happen. So when you look at things, would you need to slide Salisbury to the south, You know, build kind of a, a, a uh, quasi-southernish type sub-bracket or pod and slide it underneath yep. Mary Harden-Baylor? But the answer is probably not because Muhlenberg is strong enough to deserve its own uh, consideration out there. So there is a lot of teams that are strong enough. So here's what may end up happening. Very likely, Mount Union will be the one seed on top of one East pod. And if the East pod gets a chance to be at least its own entity, per se, a one seed somewhere, if they give one one of these teams a one seed, which is not guaranteed, they would probably be yeah. on top of a pod that's hosted by Muhlenberg, is my guess right now. But yeah, but conventionally, honestly, my my what I would do if I'm ignoring all this static, I would put Mary Harden Baylor on the top and Muhlenberg in the bottom of uh, a quadrant as the mm-hmm. one and the two, and I would yeah. basically put the East team that's most deserving as a one 
And underneath, as a two, the next East team, Mount Union obviously gets their bracket. And then Whitewater, I guess, or St. John's, I guess, would get one out in the West. Yeah. The problem, the problem trying to shift all these ones out to the West region, or as many as could be deserved, is geography, ultimately. If the NCAA is willing to spring for flights, then this is going to be the tough part is not going to be picking the pool C teams for the uh, committee this year. It is going to be yeah. essentially how do you sort the top eight teams? How do you pick the eight teams and then sort them? That's going yeah. to be a very long, arduous process for them if things don't change and some losses don't start occurring across the country. Because there's a lot of teams right now, we are top heavy in the country in terms of win-loss records. And the strength of schedule numbers and the uh, RRO records don't necessarily help you shake it out right now. Nope. So there's uh, kind of that 30,000 foot view as we always call it here. And Jack, again, with Salisbury, two wins would win it out or a Wesley slip up would go a long way to give Salisbury the conference. And the NESCAC, uh, I think you made the call last week and nothing has uh, happened to change that call. If Millbury wins, <laughs> I believe, one more game, uh, yes, if they win one more game against Hamilton, they have won the conference or at least a share of the title, depending on how they do it in the NESCAC. I believe they use head-to-head as a tiebreaker. They'll play Hamilton. Yeah. No pushover right now, Hamilton, so Middlebury can't sleep on them at 1230. But right nope. now... Middlebury looks like the king of the hill in the NESCAC. JB, time to go for us. Any final thoughts? Well, yeah, we're going to have some um, some student uh, athlete guests uh, this week. Uh, we're working on getting that set up, and we'll probably also have some more picks on Friday. You know, so it's uh, we're getting down to the final weeks of the season. Um, the games on Saturday are going to be on November second, so we're. We're in the home stretch, Frank. We're in, getting into November. That's when the um, some of the playoff stuff starts to percolate. Our friend Greg Thomas, I believe, is going to have an article on d3football.com this week where he does some some mock projections. I'm sure we'll probably have him on the show at some point in the near future to talk about uh, playoff selections and stuff like that, kind of like what we were kicking around here. So uh, it's getting down to the the, the the end of the year. So it's it's some conference races. But yeah, things are a little more up in the air than I thought, Frank. That's what's kind of fun about this. You know, you think you're like, oh yeah, this team's going to win the conference, but then again, well, some things still need to happen for that. Uh, Yep, there yet. So I thought we'd be all figured out by week nine. Guess what? It's not. So (laughs) it's going to be a couple more weeks. I was having fun last night debating uh, the East with Greg in terms of the ordering a little bit. Uh, You know, we took our uh, guess at it last week. We'll try to do a little readjustment of it this Friday as well. To look at what we think yeah. the East rankings would look like, uh, you know, if we stopped the, the season this week, um, we'll do that Friday with our prediction show. And as you said, uh, student athletes coming up uh, soon here on in the huddle. Until then, thanks for watching. See you soon, folks.